Hey, I'm Adam Williams, and this is the Humanity Podcast. Today I'm talking with Yassine Daboon, an elite ultramarathon trail runner in Portland, Oregon. He also is co-owner of a training and coaching business there called Y East Wolfpack. Now, I like to think of myself as a runner, sort of. But like I told Yassine when we got on our call, I've had a pretty on-again, off-again relationship with the sport. And I've never tackled an ultramarathon, though I think the idea is pretty amazing. I'd have to say that Yassine has me thinking about it again, though. Not because he tried to, but simply because I think that his story in life and running, it's, it, it's just inspiring. He and I don't actually talk much about running in this conversation, by the way. As much as I would have loved to have made it all about trail running, for my own selfish reasons, because I recently started running consistently again, getting back out on the trails. And I'm sure that Yassine has so much knowledge as a coach and as a runner that he could have helped me. But instead, Yassine and I dig into the real grit of his life story, because that's usually what we do here on Humanity. We talk about his story of addiction, which started at a really early age and escalated for years, breaking down relationships and opportunities as he went. And we talk about sobriety. Serious topics, no doubt. But we do have some good laughs along the way, too. And ultimately, with the tough love of Yassine's mother and his brother and support of so many others, I'm sure, he was able to shift from what he describes as spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual awakening. As you'll hear Yassine say, something inside of me didn't want to die anymore. Now, nearly 17 years sober, he's a community leader, a mentor, a professional athlete, an entrepreneur, a husband, a father, and so much more. So we talk about some of those things too, and other stuff. It's just, it's a great conversation. Oh, and we do get a couple of visits from Yassine's cat, Hunter, to further liven things up. As always, show notes and links are on the website at humanity.com. You can connect further with Yassine and his story through there. But for now, here it is, my conversation with Yassine Daboon. Yassine, welcome to Humanitou. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's good to be here. I'm going to go ahead and give what I see real quick. A thriving, successful athlete, ultra runner, business owner, coach. You're a community leader, a husband, a dad. A lot of positive, successful, thriving things. But I can really appreciate, too, that I know that there's more of a story to this. You have, well, run, (laughs) literally, and come figuratively along a rocky road. And I can really appreciate that you share that you share it vulnerably. And I identify with a number of aspects of that. So if it's good with you, I want us to go back into your early years and just cut right to it where you pretty young started with some things that, um, well, alcohol, and it would lead to addictions and things. And I'd have to say that I started young as well, maybe not quite as young as you. So I feel this, I identify with it. Do you mind taking us there and, and let's just enter your story right there. What was going on when you were a kid? Why, how did you come into alcohol so young? Absolutely. Well, like I said, thanks for having me. I love uh, what you're doing with your show and, you know, even just hearing you introduce me and all the things that I do these days is really, I, I have to sometimes pinch myself to, to, to realize like this is my life today. Um, I, mm. I really can't believe where I'm at today and I'm very grateful and thankful for everything in my life. But yes, it, it, 
it it really involved a some major shifts in my life and a lot of hard work to get where I'm at. And I had kind of, like you mentioned, um, uh, more of a tumultuous start to 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 this journey. And uh, I can, I guess, I can just go back to my childhood. I I grew up in west northwestern Pennsylvania in a city by the lake called Erie, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, grew up uh, like a normal kid playing, you know, my neighborhood kids. And, you know, I had all different kinds of friends. And at that time, I didn't know any different. And when I was about six years old, I, five or six years old, my family was, uh, my mom and dad were were going through their struggles. And uh, I, I saw what alcohol uh, substance abuse did as from a kid, you know, looking at their parent, uh, which was my dad. And there was a lot of uh, trauma and a lot of confusion. And eventually my parents uh, divorced and I was just with my mother and my brother and sister. And, you know, we were, we were kind of poor uh, as a single mom. She was trying to do her best with us. And she was also finishing her college degree and when she did finally finish, uh, she had the option to move to a rural area to become a teacher uh, for a loan forgiveness program. So she thought, oh, well, maybe I'll make a better life for my kids. I have a job out here and I won't have to pay back my loans. So she packed this. I still remember I was playing, you know, wiffle ball in the backyard with my friends. And <laughs> you know, my mom said, all right, kids, let's go. We're moving. And uh, the U-Haul truck was packed. And uh, I literally got into the U-Haul truck and said, bye, friends. And we moved uh, two hours away to the Allegheny National Forest, rural Pennsylvania. So I went to, so it was a, it was a step up in some ways, but I also, I went from a more diverse city life to almost going back in time a little bit to rural Pennsylvania where there was no diversity and um, so that was a major culture shift for me, culture shock, if you will. And that was when I was in sixth, going into sixth grade. And so that was, I think many of your listeners can probably agree, that's a tough time for anybody. I know, regardless of the other things going on in life, it's just a transitional time. You're approaching puberty and you're changing as a, as a human. <laughs> and uh, it's just, a, just kind of an awkward time. So... I went to this new school where nobody had brown skin and I was, that was the first time I ever experienced racism overtly Okay. and uh, called names and, you know, it was just very foreign to me. And I guess uh, to fast forward a little, that's where I started kind of acting out and I started doing things to be accepted. And some of those things involved uh, nicotine so cigarettes and a lot of people chewed tobacco and snuff back there. And so I, I started dabbling in that in sixth grade, which is, which is crazy to me because that's super young. And my, I have a daughter, I have a daughter now who's, who's going to be in, in sixth grade next year. And I, to imagine that her uh, going to smoke, to sneak out and smoke cigarettes uh, blows my mind right now. But I was doing that and I was also stealing cigarettes and stealing tobacco products from stores and dispersing it to friends as a means of acceptance and a means of like um, 
you know, approval and getting in with popular kids and, and it worked. And I also was very involved athletically. And that was another way I was able to integrate to this new community. I played all sports, team sports, basketball, baseball, soccer. And that was another way that really provided this sense of community. Um, but uh, again, there was still something missing in my life. There was this void that I was always kind of like searching to kind of quiet the, you know, the, the numbness. I try to numb the pain, I guess, you, if you will. You hear that a lot in, in addiction. And it wasn't long until I started experimenting with alcohol. I think I was about 12 years old when I took my first drink and I instantly knew that I liked this, like the way that this mm. made me feel, it made me feel different. And I, I still remember like drinking that first beer. It was like a can of Bush beer and, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of gross now if you think about it. <laughs> um for me, that tasted like, you know, like a micro brew IPA and, you know, and I just, and I, and I just went to town and I, and I always say, you know, from the get go, I drank abnormally. I drank to the point where I would puke. I would, you know, pass out. And I eventually would start to figure out how to control my drinking a little bit and have a great time with it. As I got into like 10th grade, 11th grade, I figured out, okay, I can just get really good and drunk and not completely, you know, pass out and, and get alcohol poisoning, <laughs> which I've had. Mm. So as I started getting into more trouble in high school, now I'm bigger and stronger and my mom was having a hard time really controlling me and I would be going out on school nights and she wouldn't know where I was at. She's calling all around town looking for me and I'm passed out somewhere uh, at a bonfire party out in the woods or in somebody's car or at somebody's house. And my mother's frantically wondering where her son is at and I have school the next day. So eventually I just became too hard to control and my father was living in Orlando, Florida so she just said, I can't do this anymore. You're moving to live with your dad. So in the middle of 10th grade, which is another tough time, I uprooted, moved to Orlando, Florida, where to live with my dad, who had, you know, kind of his own uh, set of issues and who I, who I had not seen in years. And all of a sudden I get picked up at the airport. I still remember at the airport, him like looking at me and just being like, wow, you're so big. You're so tall. Like, yeah, well, that's what happens when, you know, you don't see somebody for years. And, you know, I, I had a growth spurt. I had puberty. I'm bigger, stronger. You know, I'm not the little kid in your mind that you think you that I am. Right. And right. so that was a very tough time for me too to now go from this culture shock of a small rural town in Pennsylvania of 5,000 people to Disney, Orlando, Florida, lots of money, lots of, you know, a metropolis area, you know, it's just, it was, um, again, my magic elixir was alcohol, which helped me feel comfortable in my own skin. 
And I found that I was able to access alcohol a lot more easily down there. A lot of the convenience stores sold it. And I was very, I was very savvy. Uh, for instance, you know, just to give you a little anecdotal thing, I would go into a, a Circle K. It was like a convenience store. And I would ask to use the restroom. And I would walk in the back where the coolers were. And I would just walk right into the cooler and grab... <laughs> a 40 or something and like shove it down my pants and walk out the store and go drink it by myself. And then I would figure out how to do that over and over again. And I would drink by myself to, to the point of where I was like passing out. And that's not normal. Like that wasn't a social thing at first, but then as I became more popular in school, and again, I think that was the popularity came with my athletic prowess I was able to like get onto the basketball team at this school and I was able to um, kind of be accepted by this different group of people and became popular. And then I became hanging out with all these people and partying together. And then I became, and then it was just fun. It was like, we're partying all the time. We're going to spring break, Daytona beach. We're going, you know, and, and I always say like, I had a lot of great times out there when I was drinking and using, it wasn't all just like, abnormal weird drinking and passing out and getting in trouble like I had a lot of um connection I feel like it opened up a lot of doors for me I laughed a lot I saw a lot of cool places we would go down to Key West on spring break we would go to South Beach um, and as I started uh, reaching the end of my high school which I barely graduated because of drinking and because of my lifestyle, I started dabbling in other stuff, um, namely marijuana and pills and harder drugs, especially after I got out of high school. Um, I started uh, really getting into ecstasy and cocaine, and that was a huge um, two drugs. And, and I did a lot of other things too. I mean, I always joke I had two drugs of choice, whatever you got and more. And because yeah. I, I really, I didn't, I didn't segregate. I mean, I would, we would go to Disney and we'd go to Universal Studios tripping on LSD. And I was convinced that those parks were made for this. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, again, I really did. I thought like these 3D shows that you wear the glasses for when you're tripping, like these, that's what these are made for. Like, you know, the way Disney and the way MGM Studios and Universal are designed, like it's got to be made for this kind of stuff. And uh, <laughs> again, I had some great, great times. And, you know, I these different um, levels of consciousness in my life that were were not authentic, but they were still different experiences that opened me up in certain ways. And again, with the ecstasy and the MDMA and going to the club and being in the rave scene, I felt this sense of connection with people and with myself, this feeling of love and um, compassion and connection with others that, again, it was not authentic, but I still felt it and it still cracked me open in many ways. And so that... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, just that authenticity aspect, right? The, the idea that it's not... It's not real what you're connecting over and what we do connect or have connected over with those things as that we're, I, I guess, kind of all maybe out of control or pushing those boundaries or something. 
And that is the, that is the uniting force. Mm -hmm. You know, when you take all that away, I don't, I don't know who we would have really been friends with in, in any of that scene. And, and I want to say too, I mean, we kind of laugh at some of this stuff, but I want to step back and clarify you are 17 years sober. Is that right? Uh, coming up on 17. Six, yeah. In, in July of, of this year, I will be 17 years sober. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, you talked about the early start and that this stuff, it, it could have derailed high school. Um, yeah, I've heard you talk about did. it derailing. You had gone to play basketball in college and, and that ended in, and it sounded like in part because some of these, the lifestyle is still continuing. And so there were, there was addiction that was taking hold here or had taken hold. And so, I mean, in all seriousness around all that, of course, um, you, you have many years now of, of daily work, I'm sure to maintain that sobriety, Mm -hmm. but I get what you're saying too, because there was a time more than 20 years ago for me, I was in the army at the time. I've described that as a party scene that was college partying on steroids. It, it just took it to such a whole other level, weeknights, weekends, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're surrounded by. That was part of the culture and drugs had infested the barracks and the culture to such an extent that they started having an army wide, no, uh, no tolerance, zero tolerance thing. And I remember them bringing in dogs and doing various, uh, searches on our barracks at times people will be arrested and disappearing for the stuff and at one point there i voluntarily went to uh, a program group thing just there on post with other soldiers and what would come out of that when you're sitting there sharing these stories is you're bonding over man that that was fun it's not like we're saying i'm so ashamed yeah. of this or that thing instead it's like oh my god what a good time and we started going from these four o'clock sessions at the end of our day, right to the bar. Like that seems counterproductive yeah. and like a fail, but that's how that, <laughs> that kind of brought us together. Right. Oh. And yeah, yeah so I, I get what you're saying is like, it's this weird, this weird combination of, man, I had some good times and, oh, but yeah. then there's also this part where I struggled. Well, yeah. And I definitely want to touch on that because that's been a big part of my recovery you know, when I finally did make it to sobriety, I feel like relating with others and really sharing the, this common bond that you have, and then also now reaching sobriety is also something that really unites you and brings you together. And that's how the, I, I feel like the 12 step programs that has helped me that I feel like that's how that really works. So we come together, we tell those stories, we relate with each other. Mm -hmm. Except for we don't go to the bar afterwards together. Yeah. Kind of like you and your boys in the barracks, you know. So so when I was uh, after high school, you know, I went kind of pretty hard and I, I kind of hit a, a bottom and I knew that I had to change my life. So I ended up moving back up to Pennsylvania to my mom's place and my brother was graduating high school. And so I figured if we... If I just go up there, clean my life up a little bit, his, he's got a really good basketball team. I can kind of train with them. I knew the coach for the high school. I'll train with them. I'll get back in shape. And maybe my brother and I can go together somewhere for college and play. And so my plan worked like a charm, even though 
I was still smoking, drinking. I wasn't doing hard drugs that often. I still was occasionally, but uh, I did get noticed by Division Three College, which is, you know, not much of a big step up from high school, but uh, ended up going to a small college in Pennsylvania. And again, it was, uh, like you said, it was just, again, the addiction just creeping back in and really cinching down on your life, no matter what it is you're doing, it just progressively just takes over. And once I was living in these dorms in um, Pennsylvania and on the basketball team, the alcohol just took control of everything. I was getting very bad grades. I was, my performance uh, was deteriorating on the court. And uh, I eventually built up all this resentment which is usually the number one offender and and people that struggle with addiction is they have resentment towards people's places and institutions and that's why they drink. And so I had this I had this deep-seated resentment towards you know this small town in Pennsylvania. This is exactly like the town I lived in before. These ass backwards people, racist <laughs> I don't want to live here. This school, you know, the list goes on and on why everything around me is messed up. And, you know, if I could just get my surroundings around me um, right, then I would have a better life and I would have more, I would be more in control. So my brother had left the school after the first semester because he frankly was not impressed by the school and the people that went there, but also he was not impressed by his brother who was a raging alcoholic. Wow. Okay. Who was embarrassing him a lot. And, you know, mm. it was a hard person to live with. I mean, I've been a hard person to live with my whole life that he experienced and now we're roommates together. And so anyway, he moved out to golden Colorado and, uh, this was in 1990. Or I'm sorry. This was in two, the year 2000. Okay. And uh, we had kind of talked on the phone and, you know, I mean, we're brothers. We're, you know, we love each other. We're, we're, we're good friends, of course. And, uh, you know, even though we've had a bit of a tumultuous past together with um, my drinking and, and things like that, but he, he's like, you know, dude, it's awesome out here in Colorado. You'd love it. It's like people are so much more laid back and like, more like down to earth and you know he's like i was running down the street one day to like catch the bus and like a cop like pulled over and was like where are you where are you running for so fast and he's like i'm going for the bus and like the cop said come on jump in i'll give you a ride and he goes you know <laughs> so basically he, he sold me on colorado over the phone i had never even been there before i've only seen like photos of it so my plan was like that sounds good I'm going to save up my money and move to Colorado. And I drove all the way there from Pennsylvania. And I got just across the border from New York, I'm uh, sorry, Nebraska, down into Sterling, Colorado. And again, I was drinking and using the whole way out with a friend of mine. And I was having some mechanical problems in my van. And we decided to push it to try to get to a concert at, <laughs> at in Red Rocks or something. And, you know, that was my priority. It was not right. like, you know, my priority was just party. Where's the next party? And so 
We had some people that were going to Red Rocks for a party, even though I was having mechanical problems, like, let's just push it. Anyway, uh, ended up starting a fire on my van, which caught to field. Oh, and, wow. And all, a lot of my stuff in the van burnt up, my van burnt up, and I set like a quarter mile of field on fire. And so again, this is just another traumatic event in my life um, that I experienced. Now I've got nothing. I mean, I'm alive, thankfully. I don't have any burns on me, but I just burnt my van up. And this was how I entered Colorado. And so just to really, in a nutshell, categorize my experience in Colorado was party, 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 drink, get fired from jobs, get another job. The cocaine use got really bad. It was mostly got to the point where it was alcohol and cocaine and it was not fun anymore. So those fun times that I had in the past where I felt like connected with people and I felt like I was having a great time, those times were kind of over. Now I was just like a disgusting, addicted person that was had to use and drink every day. And uh, it took me four years of living in Colorado, of a lot of that one step forward, two steps back <laughs> kind of deal uh, with lots of pain and suffering and minimal fun times to, you know, also had, you know, a friend in there. She and I had been kind of together and she, um, she passed away. And so that was another traumatic thing where it was just like, you know, more drinking, more numb the pain, more, you know what I mean? And finally, um, I was out visiting on the East Coast in 2004 um, after I had been in Colorado for four years and I was around my family and, you know, they basically had an intervention on me and I didn't really know at that time what an intervention was. Um, you know, of course the show intervention came out later on like A and E. Um, but essentially that's what they, my family did to me when I was visiting and they, they did an intervention on me cause they knew how bad I was with my, my drinking and using. And I wasn't denying it. I was just like, I mean, that was kind of my thing. My whole drinking and using career was like, yeah, like I know I, I know I am. Uh, who cares? Like um, my motto was, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And I would, I would kind mm. of just be like, it's my life. I'll do what I want with my life. You worry about your life. And, um, but I kind of knew that something eventually was going to have to change. Like I could just tell intuitively that my end of the rope was nearing. And so I agreed that I would move back to my brother and family were living in kind of Pennsylvania, upstate New York area. And I agreed to live, to move back there to try to change my life. And so I did that in April of 2004. I moved back to a place called Ithaca, New York. And that's where I was like, all right, I'm going to try to like control my drinking. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't realize abstinence for me is the only option i thought like well i can just get it under control and i can like drink on the weekends right with people with you know socially and stuff and i just realized like for somebody like me that's not an option 
Like for me, everybody's different. For me, abstinence is the only way for me. And I, I had a few more debacles with alcohol and drugs uh, on, between April and July. And then I finally went to a, um, a wedding on July 10th of 2004. And, you know, I won't get into the details, but I made a fool of myself, drank way too much, mixed it with other drugs and completely blacked out for many hours. And, you know, I always joke, um, the John Mulaney joke, um, if you don't know what a blackout is, it's when you're, you drink so much that your brain goes to sleep, but your body soldiers on like eye of the tiger <laughs> and you don't remember anything. And so that's, that's what I did on that. And people were, when I came to finally, people were telling me what I had done how embarrassed they were. I didn't have any shoes on my feet. I didn't know where my shoes were. My brother dropped me off at my mom's house a couple hours away, was like, I can't deal with him anymore. I'm done. You take him. My mom was just like, I'm not supporting you anymore. I'm 25 years old now. Um, I was so low, like I didn't have any money. I didn't have any, I just was spiritually bankrupt. I, um, my own mother said she wouldn't help me because she, she was sick of it and she's sick of enabling me. And that's what happens a lot with addicts and alcoholics is they just get enabled over and over again and it just strings you along. And so she was wise enough to know that like, I not helping you anymore until you get professional help. That was the ultimatum. So that's what really was the impetus for me to go to a treatment center. It was, um, one of the toughest things I ever had to do. But, uh, before that, my, my aunt Kathy, she had some experience with narcotics anonymous and alcoholics anonymous. And so she was like, you need a meeting. And I just was so beat down. I was just like, sure, whatever. Uh, I'll go, you know, fine. And I, uh, I went, that was when I went to my first meeting was a day or two after that wedding. And that's honestly when, uh, when it started for me, I started to see people that were young, that were all different walks of life that were wanted to be there, or even if they didn't want to be there, they were there to, to attempt to improve their life. Um, and I, uh, I was blown away. I was blown away by people and they weren't even talking about me. They were talking about themselves. And that really just dropped my guard. And I just sat there and I listened. And I listened to a lot of people almost telling my story. And that was the first time I really related with people like on that level, like, oh my God, like I almost felt like I could just take a deep breath now. Like I, that's how I, I did that. I felt like that, you know? And that was the first time I really relate, like you were talking about earlier, how we, how you related with each other, like in the barracks, right? With your... With yeah, guys, yeah. and you tell stories, and like that's what started my journey in recovery was going to that first meeting. And thankfully, that first meeting was such a strong meeting, and I almost felt like every person was talking to me. Maybe they could sense that I really needed it and that I was really struggling. After that meeting, I'd gone to some more, but I also checked myself into a 28 day rehab. And that's when I started learning about addiction. I started learning about rewiring my brain, changing the people, places, and things 
that I, the way that I think about things, um, about the resentments that I had towards people, places, and institutions. And I had really, I mean, I had a spiritual awakening. I'm not uh, a religious person uh, in terms of organized religion, but I, I had something that happened inside of me that didn't want to die anymore. And I was excited to live. It was it was difficult at first, but especially through the initial like post-acute withdrawal symptoms where I just had massive headaches and was tired and I couldn't think clearly. When I got past those couple weeks, my first couple weeks of sobriety, I uh, I started to to undergo some profound changes in the way that I was thinking and feeling and I had got out of that 28 day program and I made a plan of action and moved back to Ithaca, New York and integrated myself into the recovery community in Ithaca, got a sponsor, sort of working the steps and my life started just really changing fast. Um, I started also working out more, like sort of like, feeling good and like, wow, it's amazing what happens when you don't put alcohol and drugs in your, in your, in your body for, for a month or two, like, holy crap, like I'm feeling good. And I started working out and I started like, I was still smoking cigarettes a lot, like a pack a day, but, uh, I was lifting weights. I was feeling good about how I felt and how my body looked. I was getting some muscle back on me. And I, I was just like, I got to quit smoking cigarettes, though. I really do got to quit smoking because I know it's, first of all, it was 2004 um, and maybe, yeah, 2000, yeah, late 2004. And I'm like, they're getting expensive. And I'm waking up in the middle of the night, coughing up like black stuff and blood and I'd light up a cigarette right after. So I ended up quitting smoking on my six month anniversary from alcohol and drugs. And I figured every six months I would have an anniversary from something. So cigarettes was the first thing that got me going back in rural Pennsylvania when I was in sixth grade. And it was the last thing I quit. Uh, nicotine is a hell of a drug. It's, uh, it's got a tight grip on so many people still to this day. And it was in some ways it was more difficult to quit that than the other stuff, but I did it in a similar way. I had a plan I had a program, I had some things to substitute, and that's kind of what got me into like cardio-based endurance uh, activities, because I knew if I substituted something cardio, maybe I would get my lungs not wanting to inhale the smoke, and so I, that's when I started running, and I started working out, and there was a guy in the meeting, he's like, he was a triathlete, and he said, you should do the YMCA triathlon, and I was, I was intrigued. Another guy from the program lent me his bicycle, and I started training for that triathlon, swimming, biking, running, gave me this framework and structure to focus on, because I feel like people like me, maybe you're out there listening and you're somebody that is you know, relating with what you're hearing right now, I feel like without some sort of framework and structure, something to focus on, then I'm just kind of like a rudderless person, a rudderless boat out in the lake. And with this new direction, I felt like I had a, a sail, I had a motor, you know, a rudder. And I would go certain days to swim, and I would go certain days to bike and, and, and run. And I started really putting time together, 
sobriety wise and from and from uh cigarettes and my body started changing and it started becoming less difficult i didn't want to drink or drug or use cigarettes and i started connecting with this amazing community and fit, like learning about why i drank why i did that helping others being involved in the recovery community and getting jobs keeping jobs more importantly and waking up with all the money that i made from that job and <laughs> what a concept you know and i started putting my life back together and it's it's a beautiful thing and yeah just get a little emotional thinking about it sometimes um cuz i've seen it now as i've seen other people do it and uh yeah it's possible cuz i i was uh, i was pretty low and to see people that are like really low and like turn their lives around is uh it's so inspiring cuz it's <clears throat> this metamorphosis that happens um people i mean their their facial structure changes their bodies change their their families around them change and um that was 2005 so 2004 is when i got sober but the real changes started in and in, in 2005 when i quit smoking and that's when i started getting into the endurance sports and I started finding success because you know athleticism was something that was always a alcohol was always a common de- denominator but athleticism was always a common den- denominator too. So <clears throat> I really unlocked that when I stopped getting infiltrated by substances and yeah, I started killing it. I started like winning races. I started like <laughs> getting noticed by companies like that said they want to sponsor me and like give me money and give me free stuff and i was just like let's go <laughs> let's go I'm- yeah yeah you you have not always shared these stories so i first i mean i i thank you for doing that here and now i know that you have some in more recent years but i think that there that this wasn't always the case and so i wonder what is it that's important to you about sharing so vulnerably and personally these things that otherwise is understandable if somebody feels kind of buried by shame and they're just like i want to oh. act like that part of my life didn't happen totally well when i first got sober i'd say the first 5 years of my sobriety i was private about it um aside from the recovery community that you know the anonymity of these programs um only the people within those programs knew that i was sober and knew my past to the outside world i was private i was just another person that uh goes to work and you know i like to do these things like triathlons and running and that's pretty much all they knew and then in 2000 uh you know it wasn't like i got sober and it was just like this burning bush experience and my life is all of a sudden better now it was all out of hard work there were struggles in sobriety as well um my wife i met also in 2005 um we connected and related over a lot of things and we uh ended up getting married in um 2009 and she got a Uh, a job offer in Portland, Oregon, and at this time I had now been running trails and really cultivating this community in the trail running and uh, ultra running uh 
circles and I knew of the Pacific Northwest just from reading magazines and seeing videos and stuff. And I was just like, man, that place looks awesome. Even though a lot of my family's on the East Coast, we were just, we decided like, hey, like we're free birds. We can do whatever we want. And she got this job at a university, Portland State University in right downtown Portland. And we decided to go for it. And we're like, let's do it. And we moved from Ithaca, which is a in some ways, a smaller version of Portland. We moved from Ithaca to, to Portland in 2009. And that's when my life really changed too. My running took on a whole new level. My running career was going great. Um, we ended up getting pregnant. My daughter was born in 2010. We had the world by the tail and um, started my business. Like again, all these gifts of sobriety were happening. Also, you know, a lot of hard work, but now instead of two, instead of one step forward and two steps back, now it's two steps forward and one step back maybe. And I was making lots of progress and running was going great. I was been lucky enough to like travel around the world for my racing. And yeah, my God, it's just crazy to like think back that it's already 2021. But um, I realized at a certain point that I just realized as I was making friends and building this community here in Portland that there were some friends that I kind of opened up to a little bit about my past. And then there were a lot of people that didn't know my past. And one of the things about AA is you got to give a, give it away to keep it. It's not like I got this now and I'm just going to hold on to this. I, I'm good now. I'm safe. I'm I'm doing better now. Thank you. Bye. No, that's not the way it works. Yeah, share it forward. Yes. Take care of others. Like you know, there were you know, I, I was thinking earlier when you were talking, okay, I get that your brother, your mom, they'd been there for you many times. There have been a lot of, you know, tough times together and they they hit a wall. Yeah. And then at some point there's somebody who lends you this bike for for your first triathlon and there are different people and people in AA and who are stepping up and, and being there for you. And I wonder, uh, I never want to put anything on somebody else in their story. So I'll put this out and then you of course clarify or take it, you know, where you do, but just this idea, I can imagine with all the years of pain that Shirley had built up. And part of that I think is when we feel like we're failing, our loved ones. We feel like we're failing everyone around us at times, including ourselves. And so it's kind of like you get lower and lower to that place we call rock bottom, but then you turn it around and you start feeling yourself moving up from that. You start feeling people showing you love and friendship and care and support and encouragement. Uh, I think at some point you did, Trust. it sounds like you have, have mended and, and improved those relationships again with your family, I think. Right. Absolutely. Just what did that feel like overall about yourself even and your worth in the world to go from that place where you felt so desperate and low to realize, no, you know what? Even now people love me. They will come with me if I just take the steps forward. Huge. Absolutely huge. It did. It was, I mean, it, you know, one of the worst things is, you know, having your family not trust you and be wondering it took a while i mean i i broke a lot I, I you know i broke a lot of bridges i i um 
caused a lot of mistrust for valid reasons. I mean, I, I stole from, I stole from friends and family and I helped them look for it. That's, that's the kind of person I was, you know, and it took a long time for that trust to be built up. But it, yeah, I think for them seeing, so I, people were sick of hearing me talk about this and talk about that and give them the used car salesman speech about how I was going to do this and do that. What happened was I had to show them through action and it took time. Right. And when I started doing that and when they started seeing these drastic, profound changes, not only in just the things that I was doing and the material things, but you know, they always say the eyes are the window of the soul, right? I was, I was different. I was a different person. I had changed. I had awakened in many ways and it was huge to me it's it still is everything to me to have that relationship with them to be involved in their lives and not be you know so reckless and hopeless and um to have them trust me to you know uh it worked wonders for my self-esteem for my self-worth like you said and that's um that's what I love seeing in others. And, you know, but I knew, like you said, just going back to like, I can't just like keep this now and be like, okay, I'm better now and I'm doing great things. Like I knew that I need to give this away and help people. And I, at one point in Portland, I just realized like after living here for a few years, I'm like, I don't remember who I told that I was sober and who I didn't. And I'm just thinking like at one point, why am I being so secretive of this? Like, this is who I am. This is a common thread in many people's lives. This is, I mean, even you and I just talking, you know, we realize, you know, when you start sharing things, you just realize how much you have in common, right? And the more I was open about it to people and honest about my past, the more they opened up to me and shared things about maybe it was different, slightly different details, but it was just that vulnerability and and you just realize everybody is struggling with stuff, you know, on different levels. And so I just decided that I wanted to be an open book. And like, you know what? I don't care if it lives on the internet forever. And I don't care if people judge me. They're going to judge you anyway. And so I just was said, you know, I'm just going to be a fishbowl. This is what, this is who I am. This is where I was at. This is what happened. And this is where I'm at now. And this is where I want to go, you know, and where I want to go is I want to continue to help people in recovery, which I'm doing through my business and through run TRG, which is the recovery gym through the Alano club of Portland and through my business, why East Wolfpack, we, we help kids and we, you know, try to get people moving and outdoors and have healthy outlets to struggles or to oppression or to wherever it might be rather than substances. And, you know, I lead um, a track workout uh, every Tuesday night for folks in or seeking recovery from substance addiction. And I lead a, a happy hour trail run every Friday evening at 6 p.m. in Portland's Forest Park. And it's just a great way to connect with like-minded folks who are trying to, to do good stuff rather than drink and drug. And that for me is, feels very good to, to, to continue to help people that are struggling with substance addiction. And again, like I said, it helps me stay sober. Right. Because I'm not cured. It's just one day at a time. 
I'm just, I have, I have a, a daily reprieve, a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual condition, you know, so I'm not cured. I'm just an arm's drink, arm's length away from a drink, you know, even though I've got nearly 17 years sober, I hear about people all the time that have long-term sobriety that end up going back out. And guess what? It's a progressive disease. So it just picks up where it's left off. It picks up where it's left, where it left off. And so, and I, that's a scary thing for me. It's a life or death thing for me. That's the way I look at it. It's like, if I want to die, then I'll go drink again. Part of the challenge, right? Is that we, we talked about how there are those fun connecting moments back in the history. And that's, that stuff still is in our head to some extent. Absolutely. So this idea of going and picking up another drink or something, some other substance, that that's part of what the, the lure is, is like, but maybe I get that again and you have to fight. It's not like you're just totally, this is something that's horrible and I hate it. If that were the case, we wouldn't feel the draw to it. So it's, um, there's actually a term for that in recovery, which is called romanticizing. So you romanticize on the great times that you had, the connection, the, the fun times, the feel you forget about the trauma, the, the felonies (laughs) that you created that you, that you didn't get caught for, you know, that you, the, you know, the people that you hurt and made cry, the, the damage, the reckless damage, you forget about all that stuff. You only romanticize about the good times. So, you know, there's a thing in recovery, they tell you to think it all the way through. It's like, think about you having fun on the deck with your friends after a run and drinking, think it all the way through. And I, and I can literally think it, what would happen? I literally vividly will think like, okay, I will get a good buzz. Everybody would leave. I want to keep it going. Uh (laughs) I go downtown. Next thing you know, I'm in Vegas or, you know what I mean? Like you can, you know, I'm getting kicked out of my house. I'm like getting DUI, get, you know. Yeah. It can lead to a lot of, a lot of things like the DUI kind of thing. Or like you mentioned, I mean, it really does lead to some damaging things that are are beyond emotional. It's, it's criminal. It's, it's various things that can. Exactly. And, and emotionally too, you know, I mean, emotionally too, like I think, and I know people have, uh, who've relapsed and you know, they, they, they say, you know, it's really one of the worst things is having a belly full of booze and a head full of AA because it's just like, you know, you're just like, damn it. You know, like now I got to start over or I got, I just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's your mind is just, just churning. And it's just like, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm good for today. You were talking about some of the community leadership pieces of the ways that you are involved in the community now, recovery, and as well as through running and how those overlap, teaching kids, being there on the Friday night runs for others. And I want to step back a second to what really has brought you to that place in the ways that you're um, stepping forward as this community leader. Now it it comes through running Mm -hmm. and you're an ultra runner, a trail runner, competitive, highly competitive and successful runner and athlete. So I want to address this idea that some people I think, and, and I understand where it comes from, but there is scrutiny of someone who goes from addiction 
in one form and then ends up managing to come to a place of say AA and recovery. And then it looks like they're going to addiction in another place. But I've heard you say that for you running is not that, that there's, there's a different connection for you with the running. Yes, it's ultra. Yes, it's, it's, it's deep, but that you're not just swapping out one addiction for another. Yeah. I think that's the simple, like, let's throw it in a box, you know, uh, kind of generalization and stereotype. And, you know, there are definitely, uh, there are definitely a lot of people that are in, you know, uh, endurance sports that have a similar past as me. And I think, you know, I mean, in a certain, to a certain extent, you know, I am addicted to running, but this addiction is not causing harm in my life and others around me. It's not that simple. This is also many things. Okay, this is also exercise. This is mental health therapy for me. This is a spiritual practice for me. Um, it's not just me about how fast I can run or how competitive I can be in a race. Like I go out to the forest every day as a refuge, as a sanctuary, hmm. as a meditative quality, as a connection with nature, uh, with, with other people. And I've built a business and a community around this. So to just simply say, oh, you just swapped out one addiction to the next is is unfair, I think, especially with the way I was addicted to alcohol and the way I was um, recklessly and hopelessly just rampaging through life. This is this is uh, so much more multifaceted and so much more rich and full and authentic. Like we said before, the authenticity, right? It was not authentic when I was taking MDMA and when I was uh, taking on putting all these chemicals in my body. I was still having these experiences, but it was not authentic. The way I'm living today is 100% clear signal authenticity. And that for me is powerful. Like going out to the mountains, going out to the, the forest deep in wilderness, connecting with others or solo, I... um. I've tapped into something that is more than just addicted to running. It's, it's a celebration of life for me. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's often hard to articulate too, especially to those that are maybe non runners. And, um, but I'm so grateful that I found this. I never realized that I would be, doing what I'm doing today. And that's one of the fun things in recovery that you hear from folks is that, um, you know, never in my wildest dreams would you, what I would believe I'm doing today. If you would have told me 17 years ago, this is what you'd be doing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, yeah. So, yeah. Um, with, with what you mentioned there about the connection to being in the forest and going out daily and having this, just be part of the life that, that you are so richly getting to have now. I love time out on trails myself, whether that's hiking or yeah. running or just sitting and meditating, just being there. And so right. that's something I want to talk with you about too, is this idea of forest as therapy, forest, forest yes. bathing as the translation Absolutely. of the Japanese term Shinrin Yoku. Yes. What, what is that to awesome. you? Like, is it, is it beyond the running for you? 
Oh, 100%. So I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I read in your one of your bios or something that you you love to go fly fishing, but it's not so much about hooking a fish on the line. It's more about the process of just being out there. And I love that because that's so yeah. much about, for, for me too, it's not about the 100 mile race that I'm training for and what place I get in or how fast I run that. It's more about the process getting there. It's like the Saturday morning connecting with friends and running out to this beautiful ridge line through wildflowers and like stopping in the creek to or stopping under a waterfall to like cool down like those are the moments that are the zen moments you know and you know it's it's awesome that you brought up shinrin yoku because i refer to that all the time uh you know on my instagram and things like that um because those are the things I never used to notice when I was, I had the horse blinders on the horse blinders Uh on for so many years. And I only saw or wanted to see alcohol party. This, the rest of life sucks. It's boring. I want fun. And that's what I thought fun was. But now it's like when I got sober, I took the blinders off and it's like, Whoa, look at all this over here. Look at all this. This is awesome. And I found something that lights me up inside. And I found that as humans, there's something like deeply embedded in our genome for millions of years about this connection to nature. Like go out to the forest, leave your phone in the car, Mm -hmm. see what happens. It doesn't have to be an ultra marathon. It doesn't have to be um, deep, deep in the wilderness. It can literally be in a local park. It, It can be... I mean, I remember when my daughter was a baby, like if she was like really crying and inconsolable, I would literally just like walk outside with her in the courtyard and there were trees everywhere. And like, she would just like look up and like all she would just stop crying. And it's just like, you know, it's amazing to think about people too in this modern world we live in, stress, technology, pressure that we, it's not like this, just this fun thing that, I like to do like going out, you know, Shinrin Yoku, forest bathing, run ultras, trail running, hiking, something I, and I think we as humans need to do. We need to, like, it's not, you know, just a hobby thing. It's like, we need to, we need to cultivate our relationship with nature and with movement. We're made to move and we're made to connect with nature. We've been doing it for millions of years and it's only been until recent that we're sitting in front of screens all day and that we are sedentary. Yeah. And that causes a lot of issues and you start, you know, comparing yourself to what you see others on online. And a lot of that, as we know, is not real. And so, and then you just get spun out in your mind and then you, you start creating these narratives in your mind and you know nature is the great equalizer and that's what I love about ultras too it's like you just go out you do your best it's you against the voices in your head you against the elements you against the course not so much against you against the guy or gal next to you and that's you know I love that I've found this this outlet and this passion or outlet is something that I love like you get to choose for you what what it is that you want to do. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's music. I, I wish I was a musician. Like I, I would like in my next life, I would love to be a musician. 
or an artist, like, cause I feel like there's overlap there. Like when I'm running down the trail and like in the flow state, I've seen like musicians in that flow state where like everything is like easy and locked in and you're almost like you're on a drug or something. Not that I'm chasing that, but it's just like, it's just, again, going back to those authentic um, experiences. Is that a kitten you have nearby? Oh my God. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Let me no, open that's the okay. door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take care of her. Let me open the door so she stops whining. I have so many animals in my home. It's, I love animals, um, but they're pretty needy. Yeah. Yeah. Here she is. Awesome. Yeah. We're on video too. A lot of people won't necessarily know that, but uh, I get to see. So what, what is her name? Hunter. And okay. she lives up to her name too. She's always bringing in, you know, birds mice and, stuff. and squirrels and not squirrels, mice and moles, I should say. <laughs> like, um, yeah. We have coyotes where I live too. So she's, uh, she's gotten chased by some coyotes and surprised she's lasted this long, to be honest. <laughs> Are you out in the woods? Do you live up against live woods in or woods. in the woods? I don't live in the woods, but I live in Southwest Portland where there are a lot of trees and um, parks and foliage and stuff. So we live by this Creek where there's like coyotes that you see even in the urban areas. Okay. You know, you mentioned um, that that's cool that you saw what I said about fly fishing. I, I've actually taken to cutting the hooks off of the flies now, because if all my fishing was, catch and release anyway yeah at some point i was feeling bad that for my some sort of amusement or my challenge or my whatever yeah that i'm hooking into fish and harming them when really yeah you know there's kind of an ongoing i think joke with fly fishermen that when you come back and you say well i was just out there for the scenery anyway that just means i didn't catch anything <laughs> so i might be one of the only ones that i mean the only one i've ever even known of to say it and truly mean it that, so then I realized, well, yeah, why am I hooking awesome. them? Why not just cut the hooks off? Good for you. And I can tell you when I have a fish on the line with no hook, the first time I ever did that, I probably grinned a toothy grin standing there alone in the river for 10 minutes <laughs> because I loved that. I still got to feel the tug on the line and I watched the fish swim away, yeah. probably a little wiser about awesome. going up to a fly in line. I love that. So yeah, being in nature, it's it feels good, right? And before I knew the term Shinrin Yoku, I already was connected with this idea, as I'm sure countless people are, that when I go where there are trees, when I go out into nature, it feels good. It, it just does. It's natural. I know. I know. So yeah, honestly, yeah, going, going piggybacking on what you're saying about, you know, harming the fish too, I... I used to always hear about, you know, people say, well, it doesn't hurt the fish. And I'm just like, how do you know? It's like, mm -hmm. imagine that, you know, like, uh, so yeah, I mean, part of my recovery too, is I actually went completely vegan because I just was okay. like, uh, I'm, I just didn't want to cause any harm to any animals. And that just was in alignment with how I wanted to live now a days where I used to make fun of my brother who was vegetarian at the time, like, Oh, I need some real food here, man. I'm sick of all this rabbit food, you know, but that guy, again, this was another one of my shifts for me. And I've been 
you know, I've been vegan since 2008 now. And uh, <laughs> so that's just something that really aligns with, with my, you know, ethics and morals, I guess, and how I want to live too. Hunter just walked in front of the camera right between yes. us. That's why we laughed. I think that's pretty funny. I wish everybody could see that. That was just, just passing through. Yeah. Like I want to, before we run out of time, I want to ask you about, you mentioned your first experiences with racism was when you moved to a small town, 5,000 or so people. I actually grew up in a town that was of a similar size uh, in the Midwest. And I, I don't necessarily want us to take time to to dive into too many of those anecdotes. You have shared them in other places that people certainly can learn about them. But as it relates to your experiences, maybe more recently, I first learned about you and something of your story last summer. There was an article in the New York Times that you were part of. You chose to speak on this subject, obviously, for those who remember what was going on here in the country and and still, I mean, it is, but we really hit a heightened tense point last year with George Floyd and many other events. And that's sort of the timing around when you were involved in this article in the New York Times and you chose to speak out about your experience with racism. Yeah. Is there, how did that article come about and why did you choose to speak, I think more openly or publicly than maybe you had before, if I have that right. And certainly the New York Times is a massive platform for that. Totally. Um, you know, I just honestly realized like when all this stuff was coming to a head that I don't know if I just like pushed it down or pushed it away or just kind of had blinders on, so to speak, towards it. But I just realized like as I look back on my life, what, how instrumental this has been in my life. Like from the time I grew up in the city in Erie, having black friends and things like that, and then moving to rural Pennsylvania and experiencing those first moments of racism to then correlate that with substance addiction and to see the correlations there, the causal relationships maybe uh, to oppression or to racism. And then just to think back, you know, I think the post that I did on my social media was, I gave an example from two years ago, two months ago, two weeks ago, Mm. and two days ago. And I also said, and I can go on, I can go on more. And the point is, is I still experience this on different levels on a regular basis. And it's unfortunate, you know, Um, it's really, it's really unfortunate, but uh, I think somebody from trail runner magazine saw that. And then I initially did an article for trail runner magazine. And then, and then one of the journalists from the New York times saw the trail runner magazine article and contacted me. Okay. But I do have hope and think that it's good that people are speaking out about this and people are being more vocal and, you know, um, trying to make positive changes through action, kind of like, you know, what kind of what we're doing. I'm doing my little small part here in my community, but also doing my part in terms of talking about it on this podcast and through articles um, on the internet and stuff like that too. But uh, 
yeah, it's a major issue, obviously. And, you know, what do we do? We, we have to start doing more things than saying like, oh, I've got brown and black friends. Uh, I'm not racist. Like, I love all people, you know, like starting to take action. So I just realized I have to start doing more things proactively, kind of like in my recovery, when I used to say all of these things, but then my actions were different. It's the same thing with this topic of racial um, injustice is like, I can say things, but I, I think we as the people need to start doing things and speaking with our action. So, so yeah, I think it's been a lot of 2020 was a tough year and you could just say, Oh, well that was a bust of a year. But I think in some ways there are, there were great silver linings in it in terms of awakenings and people to shine light on this ugly stuff that you don't want to look at, but yeah, we do need to, and we need to be proactive about it. And so what can I do? And, you know, a lot of people in my community, it's been super impressive. I actually just got off the phone with, you know, a friend uh, this morning who she's doing through her company, these, you know, to try to promote more racial and ethnic diversity in our sport. And she is, she is a race director of a company called Go Beyond Racing, and they provide um, this trail mix fund where people can donate to the fund to offer free entries to folks of color, um, uh, BIPOC, stuff like people of color and, and, and people that might not be able to afford to do the races. And it's been great. It's like, and we also do the same thing with our youth programs. You know, these kids are not seeing people of color doing hiking and trail running. So I've been really um, instrumental in trying to get kids of color in our youth programs doing trail running and hiking. And I partner with Columbia Sportswear as a sponsored athlete and showing them on their platforms like people of color can go climb mountains and go mountaineering and can go trail running and, you know. So I feel like there's a shift happening for sure. Do you feel like you have seen a a positive change over your past 15 plus years of, of being out there as a runner? Um, is this something that, well, I hate to say, but I, it's true that I was ignorant of the diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect of time outdoors. Um, I, I was ignorant of it because I just didn't plain consider it. And who I saw out there was who I saw out there. When I go for a run, I go for Mm -hmm. a run. And now I am aware of, and I follow and I pay attention to so many Instagram accounts, for example, of people living that outdoor life, whether it's camping, it's hiking, it's sports, it's high level um, competitive various, you know, sports and things. Yeah. So I'm just curious. That's a subject I know that is important to you. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have seen change over the last 15 years, or if this really is in the last year or two or five, when we're seeing more of this stuff heightened and more people becoming aware, like, like me becoming a, a bit more aware is now kind of the launch point in a way. Yeah. Now I think is kind of the launch point. I mean, I think now people are definitely becoming much more aware companies are focusing on dei 
um, you know, being proactive, like, uh, like what I'm doing through my youth program, starting them early, what, uh, you know, go beyond racing is doing through their organization, people actually taking action, reaching out to organizations, like doing more than just saying like, you know, you're welcome here or whatever, or I'm not racist, you know, or whatever being proactive. Cause it's still a very white sport numbers, statistics speaking, like it's kind of crazy how, um, the disparity, but uh, just hoping to make some changes, you know, and wake up to a lot of these things about our ugly past as a country too. And, and just, yeah, we need to evolve as a species, not de evolve. <laughs> yeah. It's been it, it to what you said a few minutes ago that in the midst of all that has been so ugly and, traumatic for a lot of people in so many ways in the past year plus especially um there are some silver linings and i do think that awareness and recognizing the need to take action people coming together to take action and i do hope that this is that situation of you know things it's getting darkest before the dawn that what we're doing here is turning it upward that this was the collective rock bottom i hope Exactly. Well, it was just kind of like I've always said too. Like I'm on a lot of these podcasts and stuff. There's there's so many parallels of my own personal story with addiction as to what we're going through as a country too. Like pain. Mm. They say that like extreme pain is like the touchstone of spiritual growth. So it's almost like we had to hit this. I personally had to go to the depths of the bottom. You know emotional bottom physical bottom to to go to go up and i'm really hoping that's what has happened with our country and the recent things that have happened that we follow that similar trajectory i think experience like what you have shared so much here right is and and now what you have done in leading others that's again kids but also being a voice for all of us as adults in the collective. Um, I, I'm thinking out loud here, but have you, you're talking about making this comparison, seeing the parallel of, of your life and that experience and what we're going through collectively. Have you thought about then in this perspective? I like to think philosophically, uh, well, quite often, I guess, that what prepared you for this moment, this time of being this community leader, of being this person, this voice who comes on podcasts and shares these things is in the New York times and so on. You went through all that hell personally, and it just happened that it now prepares you to be who you are and who we can follow and need you to be for us in a way, not to put the pressure on you, but I'm saying we all get to learn from this, you know? Yeah. I think we all have, you know, our, I think we all have stuff to share. And I think, you know, our experiences can be some of our greatest assets, right? So I think that the, the mistakes and the pain that I've experienced throughout my life, you know, may have, might give me this um, wisdom to now, now know how to steer others in a certain way to help them avoid it or to help change the world in my own little way. You know, it's like a lot of times, I always love the quote, um, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And 
And I love that because it's like, I'm not trying to change the world, so to speak, and like go after all these things. I found something that makes me come alive as a person, as a human. And now that has allowed me to have this vehicle to help change the world in a certain way in my own little corner. And I think if people do stuff <laughs> in, in their own little world, in their own little corner of the world, all of those cumulative actions and intentions and consciousness come together and can make um, more lasting and positive change. It's not, so that's kind of the way I look at it philosophically too. The word authenticity has come up a couple of times, and I would say when it comes to leadership, when it comes to someone's story who I listen to and can do so with full respect, there's an authenticity to someone's story when they have recognized and taken responsibility for having been down in the grit and come back and shown that resilience, right? There's, there's a humility about it is what it comes down to. They've lived things, and what they share comes from that humble place. And to me, that there's maybe no more genuine place of leadership for someone to come from. So I'm, you know, I, I appreciate everything you've shared here, Yasin, and uh, been so honest and, and vulnerable with it, but it is hugely helpful, I think, for a lot of people. Right on, Adam. I really appreciate the kind words and for you having me on. Um, yeah, I oftentimes just get a little emotional because, you know, I when I start like digging up a lot of these things from the past, I, you know, you forget sometimes about you, we get caught up in our busy lives and family and all your responsibilities and, you know, what's in front of you and, you know, and you forget like, wow, what a journey it has been. And, you know, and for those of you that are listening out there and, you know, maybe you've done, or maybe you're stuck in a, in a rough spot now, and, or maybe you have a friend or family in that spot too, but I would um, just, you know, it's, it's just great to know that there are stories like me or, or others that I know too, that have been in these low spots where you feel like it's too overwhelming and the walls are kind of caving in and you can't imagine not drinking or not, you know, being able to get through these low points. And so when you do hear stories like this, and I've heard my share of stories from others too, and it gives you hope. And that's what we all need today is hope. Whether it's politically with our country, whether it's um, in our own personal lives, with our relationships, it's definitely something we all need. And so I appreciate you having me on. And it's part of why I love ultra running too, is because I feel like it's another metaphor for life because there are so many times where there's just, it, it's just too overwhelming. Like you're running a hundred mile race through the mountains and, you know, it's hailing and it's raining and cold and like you're at mile like 42 and you've got 58 miles to go <laughs> and you you just can't imagine how are you going to go on, but you just, you feel like crap and then you get through those low points and you start feeling better and you start breaking that race down into smaller, more digestible chunks and that's where they that's it becomes more manageable and that's why they say one day at a time i don't need to worry about whatever is going on next month or next year just worry about today not drinking not drugging doing the right thing 
and it's much more manageable. Think about just today. Yeah. Just get to that next aid station. Don't think about mile 74. Think about the next aid station. And so I feel like there's a certain Zen in that as well about mindfulness and, you know, being present. Absolutely. Thanks again, Yassine. Thank you. Thanks for having me as a guest. It's an honor. That was my conversation with ultra runner Yassine Naboon. You can learn more about Yassine in the show notes published on the website at humanitude.com, where I've also published a show transcript. You also can connect with Yassine through the Y-East Wolfpack website, yeastwolfpack.com. That's W-Y-E-A-S-T wolfpack.com. And on Instagram, at Yassine Naboon. Y-A-S-S-I-N-E-D-I-B-O-U-N. I do hope that you've heard something, or many somethings, in this conversation today that especially rang true for you. If so, I would love it if you take a moment to rate and review the Humanity Podcast on your podcast player, if it's one that has that functionality. And I also always appreciate when listeners spread the word on their social media pages and by word of mouth with their family, friends, and everyone else. If you have comments for me, you can email me at adam at humanitude.com. And together we can shape a more compassionate, caring, and creative world. That's the point of this. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here.